0: What is the greatest task you face? Put this question to a Jewish rabbi, Muslim imam, Buddhist yogi, Christian, Hindu or Sikh priest, and you will likely be told it is keeping relevant to the contemporary world, sacred texts almost all of which were written well over 2,000 years ago. The question is, do the leaders consider the scriptures as immovable, irrefutable truths indifferent to centuries of change? Or do they interpret, adapt, update and reapply them to a global village beset by the Dow Jones, Snapchat and Fake News. Consider how Christian music has developed through the ages. These Gregorian chants date from the first millennium after the birth of Christ. The 18th century had the sacred works of Johann Sebastian Bach. Then in the 19th century, across the Atlantic, you had spirituals as composed and sung by African-American slaves. Like and then you have this Dublin quartet. In the garden I was playing the tar. I Just as music has changed throughout the centuries, so too can we divide the cinematic adaptations of the sacred stories into different eras. While the earliest films hailed from the home of cinema, France, and focused on the Old Testament, the first film about the life of Christ was an American production. In 1912, the Calum Company undertook the adventurous decision to film on location in Egypt and what was then Palestine. Directed by Sidney Alcott, From the manger to the cross not only set the tone for the following decades, it also established how Christ should look. Instead of sallow skin, dark hair and dark eyes, Alcott's Jesus appeared suspiciously Anglo-Saxon. And even though filmed in black and white, it was very clear that the actor, the appropriately named Robert Henderson Bland, was pale-skinned, blue-eyed and blonde-haired. A typical Victorian representation of a very Gentile messiah. But while Olcott's Blonde Christ has held true for almost every depiction ever since, Olcott's Solemnity was replaced in 1927 when Cecil B. DeMille made the King of Kings. Never anything more than a shallow showman, DeMille offered to audiences lured visions of sex and violence, with just enough pious wrath delivered in the nick of time to smoothly condemn it. With the establishment of the Hays Code in 1934, everything was toned down. But in Britain, a very different approach had been established as early as 1913. That was the year the British Board of Film Censors was established, and one of their central tenets was that the representation of Christ was to be prohibited. This may sound absurd now, but the board was only resurrecting, an edict from the early days of Christianity, where painters had been forbidden from depicting Christ. Thus was cinema's dichotomy between the sacred and the profane firmly established. But all those films were made in black and white. With the arrival of television in the 1950s, Hollywood responded not only in developing the widescreen format, but also lavish Technicolor epics such as The Robe, The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur. Throughout the 50s and 60s, Bible films became heavily codified. The camera rarely moved, and the actors were placed across the screen in near replications of Renaissance paintings. Dialogue was delivered at a deliberate and debilitating pace, all to the point of stultifying, if unwittingly, camp cliché. I said I'd come back. I never thought you would. I'm so glad. You've come back at Tribune. When I heard that news, I drank a toast to you. We'll drink another now. That all changed on the 4th of September 1964, when, at the 25th Venice Film Festival, Pier Paolo Pasolini premiered The Gospel According to Matthew. Or rather, it began to change on October 11th, 1962. Then, Pope John XXIII summoned his cardinals to council in the Vatican City. Over the next three years, the Curia convened to address the way in which the Catholic Church related to the modern world. Simply put, Vatican II resulted in the most momentous changes seen in the Catholic Church since the Reformation. But, just as Moses did not live to see the Promised Land, neither did Pope John XXIII live to see the results of the council. He died in 1963, but so moved was Pasolini by his efforts that he dedicated his film to the pontiff's memory. Quite the tribute when he considered that Pasolini was a Marxist who saw in Christ not necessarily a spiritual leader, but rather a political revolutionary. Moreover, Pasolini was an atheist who regarded Jesus as a catalyst for social change. Then there was the matter of Pasolini's homosexuality, which the Church deemed to be a mortal sin. Compounding that ostracism was the fact that the year before, the Vatican had charged Pasolini with blasphemy and the Italian courts had handed him a form of the conviction for the way he had restaged the crucifixion in his previous film, La Ricotta. But it wasn't just the way the Pasolini saw the life of Christ that makes his film such a landmark. It was the way Pasolini simultaneously revitalized cinema. As pointed out by Mark Cousins in his magnificent book, The Story of Film, what Pasolini did was literally change our perspective. Instead of repeating the technique of all previous films about Christ, that placed the camera at an angle so that we look at Jesus as he preaches to his disciples, Pasolini placed it right in front of Jesus so he looks directly at us. This simple relocation changed the tone of the scriptures from sacred text to political address. This was the gospel by way of agitprop and cinema vaguete. The most explicit example of this can be seen in the Sermon on the Mount. It is all delivered at a passionate pace, as if Christ were a contemporary political firebrand pressing his followers into action. Pasolini maintained that urgency by ditching the cliché that had dogged so many biblical adaptations. The reverse shot showing those gathered around the prophet, listening to and supposedly inspired by his words, but really sitting in such passive rapture as to be rendered all but inert. Pasolini correctly identified those shots as elements that slowed down and thus impeded the message. By staying on Christ's face, Pasolini makes sure we hear what is being said. The Sermon on the Mount sequence lasts five minutes. But again, Pasolini compounds that energy by doing something highly unusual. He doesn't film it in all one fevered take. Instead, he cuts it into 15 separate shots. Jump cuts, if you will. Relocating Christ to the shoreline, on a hillside, at night in the winds, in a lightning storm, in a cave. And if you watch it carefully, you won't ever see him blink. Rather than casting a trained actor, Pasolini recruited a 19 year old economic student who had never appeared on screen before. Although Enrique Irathuki had grown up in fascist Spain, Irathuki was a Marxist, and in early 1963 he went to Italy to raise funds for Spain's clandestine Communist Party. There he came into contact with Pasolini, who cast him not only because of his political affiliation, but mainly because with his dark hair, sallow skin and dark eyes, Urathoki reminded Pasolini of the 16th century paintings of El Greco. Urathoki now admits to having initially doubted Pasolini's commitment to the revolution. But once they spoke, Urathoki realised that the film would not be so much about an historical figure as it would be about contemporary political struggles. And that is a crucial point. Look at the film's original title in Italian. Il Secondo Matteo translates simply as The Gospel According to Matthew. No sainthood there. Here is Arathaki speaking in 1992 to Britain's Channel 4 of how he saw the Gospel as an age-old historical struggle. Pasolini directed me basically in uh, two different ways. One, when I had to talk to the, the Pharisees, where he was telling me to forget about what happened 2,000 years ago. Imagine that these kind of people would be the butchers or the political police behind fascism in Franco's times. And uh, I didn't have to make any effort to play angry, because I was. Another crucial departure can be seen when Jesus is questioned by the rabbis and then quickly followed by his trial in front of Pontius Pilate. For both those sequences, Pasolini and his director of photography Tonino Delicoli Colli, chose to shoot the events from Judas's point of view. Judas is part of the crowd looking on, which means that the camera is hovering over the shoulders of spectators, dodging back and forth between the heads, as if trying to get a better view. But beyond that, the camera suggests that power is very far away from the common people. And that is Pasolini's point. Authority is far removed from, and even less interested in, the needs of the populace. Power resides in a space to which ordinary people have no access. And as for the soundtrack, throughout the rest of the film, Pasolini uses classical and contemporary music to link the sacred with the secular. Gospel according to Matthew marked a new era in biblical films. You could say it ushered in a new cinematic testament. Some films made in its wake have not stood the test of time, namely the musicals Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. But indifferent as those films may have been, they do stand as part of a liberal movement, the apotheosis of which is undoubtedly Martin Scorsese's adaptation of Nicholas Casanzakis' highly controversial but even more contemplative, The Last Temptation of Christ. Many religious fundamentalists were outraged by what they considered to be profane sacrilege from a blasphemous heretic. But the truth is that the central premise of The Last Temptation of Christ is to be found in the writings of the Council of Chalcedon, which took place as long ago as the 5th century. The Council found that Jesus is quote, perfect both in deity and in humanness, the self-same one is actually God and actually man. Here is Paul Schrader, who scripted Scorsese's adaptation. You know, the church has always played a little semantic game here. Christ is fully human and fully divine. That said, let's sort of forget about the human. I mean, that's always been the game. We know he's fully human, we just don't want to talk about it. And so if you're going to actually believe that someone can be fully human and fully divine, you, you've got to make them have human desires. So while Pasolini gave us a political Jesus, Scorsese presented a corporeal Jesus, trying to wrestle free from his physical form and surrender to a spiritual destiny. What was fascinating about the Cousin Zarka's idea was that he approached the, um, the substance of Christ from the two vantage points, the point of Jesus as human and Jesus as divine, one at the same time and i think over the years we've been mainly seeing images of uh, of representations of jesus as uh, mainly divine and what fascinated me about the chastensakis idea was he went through the other way the human nature for me it makes this jesus this god our god more understandable and more accessible to an audience um and in a sense he really knows what we go through and he really is afraid to die on the cross a year after the release of the last temptation of christ Denis Arcand gave us Jesus of Montreal, which somehow managed to mine further insights. Rather than setting the film in ancient Galilee, Arcand, who also wrote the script, updated it to 1980s Montreal, where a priest who has an interest in theatre engages a troupe of actors to stage the annual Passion Play. Here is Arcand explaining his innovative approach. How can you build a story with historical... Pretend, you know with historical pretensions when you do not have any bare fact So to me the only way to talk about this story is to talk about it through somebody Researching the story or through a character that is trying to grasp What is this story all about? Why is it so important? Why is it still touching us? Why is it still? Uh, relevant somehow in, in the world we live in. What gives Jesus of Montreal new impetus is that Archon shows scant regard for the church as an institution, while simultaneously tearing into secularism with its consumer and celebrity-driven culture that lusts after power, wealth and fame. Sadly, Archon's film now stands as a high watermark for liberal reflection, because since then, there has been a retreat into conservative presentations, one of which was so reactionary, so literal and so violent, it struck me as little more than religious pornography, in which case I'd much rather read this short story by Oscar Wilde. Every afternoon, as they were coming from school, the children used to go and play in the giant's garden. It was a large, lovely garden with soft green grass Here and there, over the grass, stood beautiful flowers like stars, and there were twelve peach trees that in the springtime broke out into delicate blossoms of pink and pearl, and in the autumn bore rich fruit. The birds sat on the trees and sang so sweetly that the children used to stop their games in order to listen to them.